1: The reality is that when it comes to both setting up policies and reducing emissions, which is what matters, intentions are great, but reducing emissions is what we need to avoid the worst impacts on our health and the environment. This is Melissa Lott, a climate researcher at Columbia University. You may remember her from last week's episode on the podcast. We didn't have time to get into it much then, but Melissa's main area of research actually centers on the health benefits of a just transition away from fossil fuels. She says that the missed benefits of not making this transition are huge. So when we look at the main sources of greenhouse gas pollution, they're often the same sources of other types of air pollution. So things like particulate matter and nitrogen oxides, which are things that get into our bodies and make us sick. So they lead to childhood asthma. They make our lungs and our hearts sick over time. They affect us in a whole host of different ways. So if we decarbonize, we're moving to technologies that not only produce less greenhouse gases, but also produce a lot less air pollution. So it makes us healthier. This is something I can relate to. As I mentioned, I grew up in Oklahoma where it was pretty common to see oil rigs bobbing up and down on the horizon or refineries spewing emissions into the air. In that part of the world, like so many others, the short view tends to trump the big picture. It's easy to accept energy jobs today and choose to ignore the consequences for the climate or for your own health. Melissa takes a longer view. She's concerned about a community's overall well-being. So you'll see these communities where you see this boom and bust cycle. So a group will come in, we'll see oil and gas development for a period of time, lots of investment will be made, and then they'll leave and the jobs go with them. And that is really hard on a community and a community's development over time. Um, So there's just a lot of different impacts that we have to think about when we think about adjust and the equitable transition. This week on Heat of the Moment, we head south to America's Gulf Coast, an area with a long history of fossil fuel extraction and a number of health problems that come with that. We'll talk to a former worker in the industry as well as a community organizer to see what environmental justice means for them along America's third coast. We'll also ask how a place like Louisiana, which relies on fossil fuel revenues and also is shaped by the culture of these industries, can try to go about making the transition to cleaner energy. How do we make that shift while respecting the dignity of people who've worked for generations in the fossil fuel industry? I'm John Sutter, and you're listening to Heat of the Moment season three, A Just Transition. This is Lake Charles. Lake Charles, Louisiana, one of the largest petrochemical hubs in the country.
0: We furnish most of the chemists for this petrochemical industrial plants that are here. We furnish many of the engineers, many of the business graduates, and uh, quite a few other technical people at these plants... The really Gulf Coast
1: products. of the U.S. long has been favored by producers of plastics and solvents and other chemicals, in part because of its proximity to oil, and to lax environmental laws.
0: We have a good rapport with businesses throughout the area that we serve. And when I say the area we serve, I go from Houston to New Orleans through Baton Rouge. Locals have had to
1: deal with the consequences of these plants. Louisiana has the fifth highest cancer rate among all states. Not far away from Lake Charles is the 85-mile stretch between New Orleans and Baton Rouge, which is widely known as Cancer Alley. It's dangerous work. For decades, the region has been inundated with toxic pollution from chemical plants along the riverbank. But no place along this stretch, or indeed anywhere in America, is more at risk of cancer due to air pollution than here in reserve. Despite these dangers, the salaries are enticing for many.
0: Uh, young people can get a job in the city or they can go out and usually they all find work in the field that they studied.
2: It, it pays well. But the risks are real, and the exposure to these chemicals is real.
1: That's James Hyatt. He's a native of Lake Charles and is the son of an oil refinery worker.
2: And I had grown up with him uh, coming home from, from there every day. And so one like, visceral memory I have is that he would come home and he would, he would smell like the plants. It was like some chemical smell um, that you can smell when you're around these places.
1: Pledging a different life for himself, James went out to forge his own path. At 19, he left Lake Charles for New York City with dreams of becoming a musician. But when the time came to settle down, he and his wife knew that they needed a dependable salary. And James found himself doing what he thought he'd never do. He returned to Lake Charles.
2: My uncle has a ship agency business, basically. um, We are a large port. We're the 12th largest or busiest port in America. And we ship out a lot of uh, refined products and also we take in a lot of crude oil we also have a lot of rice uh, that we ship out pet coke and other products
1: he worked long hours like really long hours
2: i i'd moved from working as a ship agent because it was like a 24 7 on call kind of job to this uh shift that is it's they call it the canadian shift or dupont schedule where you get seven days off in a row once a month but you also work um Four days and then four nights. You work days and nights, it switches back and forth. And when the sun goes down to fall asleep and wake up when the sun gets up is, uh, you know, really, that is your circadian rhythm. And to, to do shift work requires you to, to you know, mess that all up.
1: The job paid well, but the hours were brutal. And working in the petrochemical industry carried other risks.
2: You are being exposed or potentially exposed to hazardous you know, chemicals, explosions, fires can happen. It's dangerous or can be dangerous. I mean, they the attempts to mitigate that is, you know, pretty pretty well. But safety does end up resting with the worker. You know, it is up to the individual to to stop production or to say this is not safe. And there's a uh, it's not incentivized to do that. There's there's more incentives to just look out for or pass it along to the next shift or something.
1: James became a father himself, and that's when the risks started finally outweighing the rewards. Not only was his job dangerous, it was leaving him feeling empty.
2: The justification that that I'd always give myself working at the refineries we were fuel in America i just didn't I didn't feel like I was being fulfilled, or like my life's purpose was was really lived out there. Not that you can't do that and have that and work in these industries just for me it didn't work out that way it didn't seem didn't seem like trading that time for that money was was worth it.
1: James eventually left the industry to pursue a degree in psychology. He says what he wants most for his kids and for other residents of Lake Charles is to feel like they have more options to a decent living beyond the petrochemical industry.
2: We all have to make some trade-offs it seems in order to live in this society but it's not that we have to we have to give in to the only opportunities that's presented. Sometimes you have to move away to find your own opportunity. And um, I would tell my kids, please don't go work in this, uh, you know, this public health hazard and do something. Do something with a degree. Get your master's degree.
1: These days, James is part of something called For a Better Bayou, an environmental nonprofit. And that's not the only way he feels called to serve. He now serves as a local preacher and cites his faith as one of the main reasons he's become a vocal advocate for a just transition. He now spends lots of his time advocating for a move away from fossil fuels for Louisiana.
2: We are so like stuck in this like backwards way of thinking that, that I've got to get mine before you can get yours. And the truth that, you know, this thing that we've been told that we, we should love our neighbor, we like to say, but we don't like to implement because who's my neighbor? Well, everybody, even those people that might live across the tracks, they are my neighbor and and their well-being is concretely tied to mine. We are interdependent even in ways we have no idea about.
1: There's another person we'd like to introduce you to today, Rochetta Ozan, a community organizer, also based in Lake Charles.
0: You can clearly see the environmental injustices that are faced here in this community, the climate injustice, um, the social injustice that we face here. And I fight all of those things daily.
1: Rochetta works for a group called Healthy Gulf. And her main focus is to empower women of color to make a positive change. She got sick and tired of her community being overlooked. And she told me that she wants to help Lake Charles become cleaner and healthier. And she doesn't want to do that at the expense of people's welfare.
0: So just transition. You know, I I start off always by saying that we don't expect for us to be completely weaned off of oil and gas tomorrow. It's going to take time for us to transition from the fossil fuel usage. It's going to take time to transition from oil and gas. But if we continue to introduce new facilities, if we continue to rubber stamp new facilities, we're never going to transition. So a just transition means offering alternative jobs to folks who work in the industry. So it's our job as big green organizations, it's our job as organizers to make sure that those alternatives are out there, not just alternative jobs, but also alternative solutions to energy. Alternative solutions, not LNG. We have to stop greenwashing stuff. LNG is nothing natural about it. It should be called LMG for liquefied methane gas because that's exactly what they're releasing into our communities to greenwash it to make people think it's better. And we don't have real, tested, safe solutions. So that's what we have to start working towards. The just of that just transition means that we're making sure that it's equally equitable for the most marginalized communities. Because we know that for decades, our communities have experienced a long history of health issues due to bearing the burden of the fossil fuel pollution and other extractive infrastructure and industries. We have to make sure that every decision made Everything that's coming to our community is equal, equitable, and just, and that it no longer burdens us, destroys our community, destroys our families, and kills us. So we have to look at all of the decisions that we're making and make sure um, that it's just for for everybody, especially the most marginalized people who have bared the burden forever.
1: I I mean, I think that's so powerful on a lot of levels and like one thing I wanted to ask you a little bit more about is I just think it's like so like awesome and interesting that you would go up to fossil fuel workers and ask them about their jobs and try to figure out what was going on like I love that you're like kind of jumping across that line and trying to to talk to everyone and I I wonder like if you could tell me a little bit more about what those conversations are are like like if you encounter pushback for the work that you do if you've learned surprising things about people who work in the Fossil fuel industry. I I just think that's such a like kind of a rare thing these days almost.
0: Yes. The surprising thing for me is that I have not experienced a lot of pushback from the actual workers. (laughs) You know, when you start talking to the workers and you build a rapport and you make friendships, first I'm not a stranger to anyone. I'm very friendly. I talk to everybody. My children do not like going in the grocery store with me because we can be going in for one thing and stay an hour because I talk to everybody in there. And they can relate to me because they're working in the industry to take care of their families. And for a lot of them, they have no other choice if they want to be able to afford to live in this community. That's the only jobs here. You know, the the biggest um, employer here is the school board and industry or or you work in the casinos. Right. But working in the casinos, you're not making nearly enough money to live here. Um, so I understand and I get it. And when you talk to a lot of them, that's their story. I don't like what we're doing. I don't like that we had a, a flare. I don't like the pollution. I understand I could get cancer, but I have children. I have a wife. I have to feed my family. I need to pay my bills. So that's really how the conversations go. A lot of times they're calling me, up, you know, a lot of people can't support what you're doing because they don't understand it but I get it, I understand. And some of them will call and say, hey, this happened, there was no report on it. you know." Or I've had calls that say, there's a ground flare right now. you know." And so they'll call me, the workers, and they'll let me know what's going on because they care about their community, but they have no alternative. They have nothing else to go to that's going to pay them the money that they're making at the plants. And so I think that now in this fight against fossil fuels we have to realistically be looking at alternative solutions as far as jobs these are the only jobs that are available here that will pay people a livable wage
1: are you optimistic that that transition away from fossil fuels will happen is happening and that there will be you know green jobs for your son and and other people in in his position or are you fearful about some of that that, the back and forth that you do see happening and you know industry has done a lot to try to pump the brakes on this
0: you know I try to stay optimistic when I wake up in the morning and I see my four-year-old smiling and happy and we talk about Mr. Sonny because that's what he calls his son you know I'm so excited in the morning but then when he leaves I'm so sad because whenever we're driving to school and I see the industry and I see the flares it really makes me sad, and I don't want to crown this interview, but it makes me wonder if there's ever going to be a world where he does not have to fight as hard as I'm fighting. You know, when I heard that I was going to Egypt to COP27, the 27th COP, the 27th convening of the party, I was excited about going to Egypt. Me, a single Black mom from this small town in Mississippi, going to Egypt. You know, I said it like 12 times when I was like, I'm going to Egypt. And then when I got to Egypt, I was like, I'm in Egypt. I'm in Egypt. And as soon as I got to those meetings with the same elected officials that I meet with when I'm here in D.C., they sold me the same bull crap that they sell here. And I was like, I could have been at home with my children. You know, it was really just a nightmare for to be there and hear them talk about going towards net zero emissions when at the same time they're approving big site flight commonwealth. Whenever you continuously approve these giants, these monsters, that's another 30-year death certificate that you're signing for our communities. And it doesn't make sense to me. How are we transitioning? How are we weaning off of fossil fuels if we continue to approve them, if we continue to steamroll them, if we continue to rubber stamp them into the communities? How are we weaning ourselves off of them? We're not. And so those type of things just do not give me hope. But when I hear stories like Sharon Levine from um, St. James Parish, who's fighting against Formosa, I mean, several people have fought against Formosa in several different communities, but she's still fighting and she wins, you know, and people look at me and they say, Rashida, you won this and you won that. And yes, it's good. But whenever I see other people winning, whenever I know that I'm not fighting this alone, whenever I know that this world is so big and I can't do it all, but other people across the globe are fighting this same fight, that's what gives me the hope that I need, um, to know that I'm not in it alone and to celebrate in other people's wins and to celebrate in, in other communities getting what they need to thrive and survive and just being hopeful that one day um, we'll get the same thing in Southwest Louisiana and Southeast Texas.
1: Rosetta, Ozan, thank you so much for sharing your story with us and, and for sharing that, um, that, that bit of hope there at the end. I really appreciate it.
0: Yes, of course. Thank you for having me.
1: thanks to Lake Charles community activists Roysheta Ozan and James Hyatt for joining us today. To learn more about the Louisiana Bucket Brigade and Healthy Gulf, check out links that we'll put in the show notes of this episode. Next week on Heat of the Moment, we head to Ghana, where small scale miners are being given incentives to stop cutting down local forests and move to greener ways of making a living.
0: The land is destroyed and it will take time to restore it. So there have been programs geared at restoring their farmland, and some of these programs have helped them recover their land enough to go into oil palm plantations.
1: That's next week on Heat of the Moment. Heat of the Moment is a partnership between foreign policy and the climate investment funds. Our production staff includes Rosie Julin, Rob Sachs, Scott Andrews, Hugh Seawright, Dan Efron, Laura ross Claudia Tadey, and Yurei Woo. The Climate Investment Funds is a nonpartisan champion of climate action. Political views and opinions expressed in this series do not necessarily represent those of the Climate Investment Funds, foreign policy, or their partners. Until next week, I'm John Sutter. Thanks for listening.